Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we always have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to confess any known sins in the privacy of your priesthood in silent prayer to God the Father. Uh, Confession is based upon the reality that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Therefore, the penalty has already been paid. Nevertheless, we recognize that when we sin, we are out of fellowship. We're uh, no longer uh, living or walking by the Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit who teaches us and guides us in the truth. It is the Holy Spirit who helps us to retain the scripture that we learn and to recall it for times of application. It is the Holy Spirit who produces spiritual growth in our lives. Therefore, it is incumbent upon the believer to stay in fellowship as long as possible, as much as possible, and to walk by means of the Spirit. So before we study the Word, we always make sure that we have a few moments of silent prayer to give you that opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much that we have this privilege and opportunity to gather together this morning to worship you through the teaching of your word, that learning how you think, learning what you have revealed to us in your word, learning these principles of doctrine that we might live a life that reflects your character and that glorifies you is indeed the highest form of worship. Father, we do thank you for the freedoms that we have in this nation, that we thank you for those who have gone before us, those who founded this nation, who understood so profoundly the principles of freedom, so many of which were embedded in your word, and it is because of that framework, that frame of reference of Judeo-Christian thought that was provided for them in that generation that they were able to pen such a phenomenal document as the Constitution which we have and under which our liberties are guaranteed. Father, we continue to pray that you would protect this nation. We pray that you would continue to guide and direct our president, that in the midst of the ongoing conflict in Iraq and the problems in Afghanistan, the continued war with terrorism, we pray that you would give them uh, wisdom as they plan the strategy and develop the 
tools necessary to defeat these enemies who seek to destroy everything that this nation stands for. Father, we pray that you would challenge us this morning as we study your word, recognizing that it is your word that gives us the true foundation for freedom. As Jesus said, if we know the truth in reference to your word, then the truth will set us free. So, Father, now as we study your word, we pray that we would be responsive to the challenge the Holy Spirit brings us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And this morning we're doing things a little backward. We come to the central passage in the New Testament this morning on the Lord's table. And we will study that this first hour and then second hour, the 1045 service, we will have the Lord's table. So we will have a little bit of review second hour as well for those who haven't made it uh, to this first, first hour Bible class this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, let's begin at verse 17 to pick up the context. Paul shifts gears, starting in verse 17. Now he is going to rebuke and correct the Corinthians. In the first part of this chapter, he was praising them because they were at least attempting to apply that which he had taught, even though there was some confusion due to various uh, misunderstandings related to uh, some teaching that he had given. Now in verse 17 he says, I give these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse, he recognizes that they are not coming together. And the word there is a word we'll see repeated in verse 20. Soon erkomai in the Greek. And this refers to the gathering together of a group of believers, whether it's two or three or two or three hundred or two or three thousand. It refers to the gathering together of believers for public worship or for corporate worship. So he recognizes in verse 17 that their underlying motivation is not to learn the Word of God so that they can learn to think the thoughts of God and live their life under the power of the Spirit of God so that they can bring glory to God. They are gathering together to satisfy their own personal lusts and desires, which is consistent with everything we've seen so far in this epistle in relationship to the Corinthians. This was the most uh, corrupt group of believers in the early church, and the reason for it was that they had committed an error that has perpetuated itself down through the centuries of Christianity, and that is that they had taken their Greek religious backgrounds, various ideas that they had picked up in the mystery religions, various ideas that they had picked up from the human viewpoint philosophical systems of of, uh, Plato and Aristotle and later on the Stoics and the Epicureans, and they were syncretizing this with with Christianity. In other words, they were trying to blend the two. And you can't blend human viewpoint thinking 
with divine viewpoint thinking. You can't come along and take what the world teaches, take take the various philosophies and ideas that are taught from the world that are come out of a human viewpoint concept of authority and then blend them with the scriptures. They are juxtaposed to one another. You either have a biblical worldview or you have a non-biblical worldview. And we normally express that through the terminology of human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint. That all of the scripture presents one unified viewpoint, and that is God's viewpoint on all of reality. And God addresses something through the scriptures in to every area of reality. You can whether you're talking about music, whether you're talking about science, whether you're talking about ethics or law or politics, you can always go to the Word of God for your starting point. And that provides the framework for understanding things. It was interesting yesterday. I had a great telephone conversation with uh, Charlie Clough. And he was telling me about his son, who has uh, just won an award as the best teacher in his county down in Virginia. He's a third grade teacher. And so he's in the running for the best teacher in the state. And so all of those who were to be uh, candidates for this position had to write a three-page paper on their philosophy of education. Now, what would be typical from people in our culture and our background today is they would their starting point for philosophy of education would probably be pragmatic in terms of, especially when you have uh, so much in education in terms of end result type of curriculum uh, development that's going on today. But his son started off his paper saying, well, before you can talk about the philosophy of anything, first of all, you have to resolve basic metaphysical, epistemological, and axiological uh, issues, or you can't say anything about anything. And, of course, the acorn hasn't fallen too far from the tree. And I'm looking forward to getting a copy of that paper. But the point is that everything in life whether you're talking about a philosophy of education or whether you're talking about philosophy of parenting, whether you're talking about your own personal philosophy of how you handle finances, whether you're talking about political philosophy, legal philosophy, whatever it may be, everything ultimately goes back, as he pointed out, to a metaphysic. And that's just the philosophical term for the ultimate reality. Everything in life ultimately flows from your view of ultimate reality. And if your view of ultimate reality is a sovereign creator God of the scriptures, then that is going to change how you look at everything in life. And if you want to be a consistent thinker as a Christian, then you have to meditate on these things and think through the scripture on these things. And this is the one of the main things that Paul is getting at in this entire epistle is that the what the Corinthians have done is to take human viewpoint thought of Stoicism or Epicureanism plus their mystery religion background, so it's just a real hodgepodge of ideas, not unlike what we have in our society. There's a tremendous similarity between the old Rome and the and the new Rome of the USA, and the old Rome of 
uh, in their own Greco-Roman culture in Corinth and the totally relativistic postmodern culture in America where you just take everything together. Everything has equal value, equal weight. Every idea, every religious system is equally true and equally valid, and we just are going to merge them all together into one hodgepodge and think that somehow we are more enlightened than anyone who thinks there is only one way to God. So what they had done in the Corinthian church was they took all of these Ideas that they had picked up from their culture that had basically been been brainwashed into them, and they were trying to add it to whatever Paul had taught them about Christianity. And the result is that it destroys divine viewpoint. Now, I got a great illustration of this yesterday. What happens is in our culture, as you grow up, you are bombarded with all kinds of human viewpoint ideas. You get that in the education system from the philosophy of education of teachers. You never know when your kids go off to public school what the frame of reference is for their teachers. And they're coming from one perspective or maybe many different perspectives. And whatever their personal beliefs are, that is going to color what they teach unless they're an absolute imbecile, which I'm sure some of them are, because most people in our culture don't want to be consistent. On the other hand... They have, they have certain guidelines set forth by the state that they can't say certain things and they can say certain things. And as I've pointed out before, there are certain lists that are out there set forth by the major textbook publishing companies of words and phrases and pictures that cannot be used in textbooks because they're considered uh, patriarchal, they're considered sexist, they're considered uh, religious, they're considered pro-Christian, whatever it may be, these words are being expunged from the textbooks. So it's not just what is said, it's also what is not said in the classroom. For example, in this paper that Charlie Sun wrote, he pointed out that the trend, or the trend, the emphasis in education theory today is, um, is what is called um, constructivism. And in constructivism, in constructivism, the idea is that the it's a value trying to have some sort of values-oriented education. It's the child who is to generate his own values. And in the the view that is opposed to constructivism is objectivism. And in objectivism, you have the idea that there are external external to the human race. External to our experience, there are moral absolutes. And so in his paper, which he admits is probably why he won't get the, the award of best teacher in the state, he argues that objectivism is the only way to go because a th- third grader cannot generate his own values. Values come from some external reference point. They don't come from inside. When everybody generates their own values, then there's no real basis 
for saying that if one person says murder is okay and another person says it's not, how do you judge between them? In a postmodern culture, every value has equal weight, every culture has equal weight, so who really has the right to judge? You must have an external reference point. So when the state comes along and through the omission of teaching absolutes, through the omission of teaching the fact that there are moral absolutes, what it does is it breaks down the conscience of children. So you have, on the one hand, one influence is education, then another area is peers. So your children are growing up, and you grew up, and you had friends who weren't Christians. You might not have been even in a Christian household. And so those peers had their views and their opinions, and as a result of peer pressure, you picked up a lot of ideas. And then you had... um, uh, other authority figures in your life as you as you grew up, maybe they were Sunday school teachers, maybe they were co- coaches, sports figures, uh, whatever it might be, piano teachers, whatever that may have had some uh, influence on you. Then there were then there's uh, television, uh, books, uh, film. All of these things communicate certain ideas about life, about what's acceptable, about what's, what, what's not acceptable. And so as you grow up, you develop a grid, a frame of reference. And everything you learn beyond that point, you filter through that grid. And now this is a human viewpoint. If this is a human viewpoint grid, then what happens is it acts like a filter. And when somebody comes along and starts teaching divine viewpoints, starts teaching the truth of Scripture, and it bangs into this grid, what happens is it gets retranslated, and this is the problem you had in Corinth, is they're, 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 they're merging these ideas together, and they're coming up with something that's neither uh, Greek nor is it truly biblical. Now, let me show you how this works today, because your kids are going up. I heard a story yesterday. Every now and then I hear stories like this, and it just brings me back to reality. So I want to bring you back to reality. This was told to me by a man who's a Sunday school teacher in another doctrinal church. And I'm not going to say where, because that would give it away, and this might come back to the parent and embarrass the parent. He was telling the story about how he told me two things yesterday, and parents, you need to listen to this because this is the biggest challenge you have trying to raise children today is because when you you and I, especially if you're over 40 to 50, you had there was more of a residual uh, holdover from Christianity when we grew up. So that there were certain things that were social taboos that even though people had rejected Christianity, they still understood that certain things were wrong. But your kids today are growing up in an environment where those things aren't even considered wrong anymore. They don't have a sense of that right and wrong. And he was telling me how he has uh, conversations frequently, and he's been teaching this class for five or six years now. He frequently has conversations with young 14 13, 14-year-old uh, guys in the class who come up, and they're saying, now, now tell me why it is that I can't sleep with this girl. Help me understand why this hot chick that wants to go to bed with me, I can't do that. I just don't understand. And they'll have a, he says, well, typically we'll have an ongoing conversation. Eventually, they'll say, well, you know, I'm going to do it this weekend. Now, when I was young, you'd never have a conversation like that with a parent or with a Sunday school teacher. 
because you understood that there was something wrong, you were going to do something that wasn't right, and there was a sense of shame that came from a conscience. And that conscience has been established through the, through the teaching of parents and through Sunday school teachers and through, through a, a immediate culture that at least built absolutes into the soul so that even if we did the wrong thing, we knew it was wrong and there was a sense of shame. But what's happening today is that, that the kids are growing up in this postmodern relativistic society where they are so they have had this this relativism so inculcated into them by the culture that even though this, these are kids that go to a doctrinal church whose parents are, are, are regular church attenders and squared away, taught the word, these kids have grown up in, in their Sunday school system, and they still have a problem. That's because the, the in, we, we underestimate the influence of the culture around us in shaping our thinking. So much so that he told a second story of a situation that occurred when a young girl, about a 13-year-old girl, came up after class one night, and she was just standing there, and he looked up, and she just has these big tears starting to come down her face. And he said, well, what's the matter? He said, well, my mother is so mad at me, and I, I just hate being at home anymore. I can't get along with, with with my mother. She's just been so mad at me for the last week. I just don't know what to do. So he said, "Well, let's let's sit down and talk about this." And she said, "He said, well, why is she mad?" Well, about a week ago, there were four boys that after midnight, everybody had gone to bed. There were four boys that snuck into my upstairs room. We, they had a ladder, and they climbed in the window, and they snuck into the upstairs room. And my mother came up later, and when she and there were four boys and a girl, and when she opened the closet door, these four boys and a girl were all in her closet naked. And so my mother's mad at me. Now, the girl had a sense of shame. I mean, this is from a girl who grew up in a church like our church. With parents just like most of you out there. This isn't somebody who grew up in some liberal church where they're not teaching values and parents didn't care. And she's sitting there saying, I don't understand why she's mad at me. I mean, she's got no sense of shame as to the fact that she did something wrong isn't really impacting this girl. She's more upset with the fact that her mother's mad at her than that she did something wrong. Why is that? We have to ask this question. Why is it that this is a problem? What's, ha- what's going on here? It is a metaphysical and epistemological problem. It boils right down to what's happening in Corinth, and it, it's what's happening in your home. It's what's happening in your life. It's what's happening in your kids. When you have been inculcated with human viewpoint thinking, it serves as a filter, and no matter how much you say this is wrong, what happens is that human viewpoint filter just takes it, rationalizes it instantly, spins it around, and gives it a whole new impact. It's, it's the automatic orientation of the sin nature that does that. And so the teaching, and this is one of the things that I try to emphasize in our prep school, and this is something, uh, we live in a, in a time of danger. This, we live in perilous times today because of the impact of human viewpoint thinking on the church and on believers and on our children. It's not just enough anymore to, to teach doctrine just 
in and of itself. We have to orient it to what's going on in the culture around us, and especially at the prep school level, set up this juxtaposition between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint so that it becomes crystal clear to these kids what the differences are and why they're that way. And this is something that can't just be done by prep school teachers. It has to be done by parents as well on a continuous basis using every opportunity that comes along to teach kids, not to necessarily lecture kids and that sort of thing, but just to make application here and there along the way to point these things out. Now, this is what's going on in, in Corinth. And it's a problem that does, it's not limited to Corinth. It went on through the Middle Ages, and it extends to modern times. It is a problem that is addressed by Paul in Romans 12.2, that we are not to be conformed to the world, but we are to be transformed by the renovating of our mind, of our thinking. And this isn't just the overhaul of a few ideas. This is a ground-up overhaul. I've used the illustration many times. Most Christians, when they want the Holy Spirit to straighten up their life, they have the idea of an interior designer coming in and putting up new wallpaper, tearing out the old carpet, putting in new carpet, putting in a new sink, new drain board. And when the Holy Spirit shows up, he doesn't show up with just a few uh, tools to do that. He shows up with a bulldozer because he's going to scrape everything off down to the foundation tear up the foundation and rebuild the whole edifice. That is what the Christian life is all about. And so Paul has to rebuke and challenge the Corinthians because they have merged so many human viewpoint ideas with Christianity that they've lost the whole significance of what Christianity is all about. And this is reflected in the way they're abusing the Lord's table here in 1 Corinthians 11. So he recognizes that they have come together in their public assembly for, not for better, but for the worse. For Verse 18, he says, For first of all, when you come together as a church, so he's talking about the public meeting of a body of believers, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. As a result of their arrogance, they've factionalized, we've studied that. It's not that there's, there are major splits in the church, but there are there are certainly cliques in the congregation. And he says then in verse 19, For there must also be factions among you. And here he uses the word hierasis, which is the Greek word for heresies. It doesn't mean the sense of heresy that we use it today, but it had the idea of, of divisions and factions set up in their midst based on different, different uh, people that they were following and perhaps even some different doctrines. He says it's, it's necessary that there be these factions that those who are approved may be recognized among you. So that's his challenge. Now, what are they divided over? One of the things that they're divided over is the Lord's table. Verse 20, he says, Therefore, when you come together in one place, coming together soon erkamai, meaning to gather together in public worship, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's table. And here he uses an infinitive of purpose, which, in, which states his purpose, or their purpose, is not to eat the Lord's table. They have another purpose in mind. They're there to have a good meal. They're focused on having their uh, basic desires met. They want to eat well. They're going to come together and 
what we would call today as a, a covered dish dinner or something of that nature where everyone would bring something to church. And in the early church, they had what they called an agape feast. They modeled this on the fact that when Jesus instituted the Lord's table, on the night before he went to the cross, he celebrated a Passover meal with his disciples. And so there was a full meal, and it was all according to the uh, regulations of Passover. And they ate the roasted lamb and the bitter herbs, and they had four glasses of wine and toasts at different stages of the meal. But our Lord took the bread, which was unleavened, and he took the wine, and he invested them with new meaning. Just as the Passover uh, bread looked at the fact that the Jews in the Old Testament didn't have time to bake bread and for the introduction of yeast and to let it rise because they were in a hurry waiting for God's deliverance at the Passover, that that Passover bread had another significance, and that was that leaven represented sin or evil. And so there was a removal of sin Uh, from the bread, and that bread, the Lord said, has a new meaning, and that is it represented his body. He was sinless. He was impeccable without sin. And he took the cup. The cup represented in the old, uh, represented in the Passover meal. It was called the cup of redemption. It was the third cup. And so he applied that to what was about to happen the next day on the cross when he would die on the cross as a substitute for the sins of mankind. So they they recognized that the Lord had eaten an entire meal around the Lord's table, so they were, were imitating that, and they would come together, and they would the whole church would get together, and they would have a covered dish dinner and enjoy good fellowship. And there were two types of people in the Corinthian church. There were those who were wealthy, and there were many who were poor. And the poor could not bring anything with them. They did not have food to bring, and this presented a problem, but we'll get into that in the next couple of verses. So Paul says, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's table. Once again, he's affirming the fact that that they may come to church for many reasons, but it's not for the right reason. You don't come to church for fellowship. You don't come to church in order to have a place for your children to uh, get some religious instruction. You don't come to church in order to... Uh, be entertained, you come to church in order to learn the Word of God so that you can think like God wants you to think and be able to interact with the details of life in the way God has uh, established them because we know that He is the Creator of all things and He is the one who informs us as to how we are to think and interact with life. Now he goes on in verse 21 to explain why it is that their eating is is out of line or wrong. Verse 21, For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others. It begins with the particle gar in the, in the Greek, which indicates an explanation of something. It says, In the eating, each one takes his own supper. And this word for taking their own supper is the Greek word paralambano. Looks like this in the Greek, P-A-R-A-L-A-M-B-A-N-O. And it has the idea of to take or receive, and that comes from the root lambano, 
But the idea of para, this preposition that is that is prefixed to the to the verb, indicates taking something ahead of time. So if you broke it down etymologically, it would mean, or excuse me, it's not para lambano, it's pra. P-R-O, pra lambano, meaning to take beforehand, and indicates that they were rushing to eat their own food before others could get there. The uh, wealthier people had their slaves and their servants who would prepare very fine meals, and they would bring this down to the church. But they did not want to share with the servants, the slaves that also came, and the poor people who didn't have anything to eat. And so as soon as they got the opportunity to eat, they would all, all those who had brought food would rush up in line first and in a very inconsiderate manner uh, shove the poor people aside and then they would go through and they would take all of their own food to eat and they weren't sharing their food with the poor and the hungry. So Paul is saying, for in the eating, each one is taking his own supper ahead of the others that's ignoring the the poor and the result is one is hungry and another is drunk so he deals with two different issues one is hungry in other words now at the end of the meal the the poor hungry believer who's come to church this may be his one time a month to get or one time a week to get a decent meal and he leaves hungry and on the other hand, the, the wealthy person has taken his goblet, filled it up with wine, and he's sitting over there gorged on food and drunk on the wine. And he has turned the Lord's table into an orgy. It is an, it's another indication of the core problem we've seen throughout Corinthians, and that is arrogance. They're self-absorbed. The only thing that matters is me, 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 and they're not thinking of anyone else. And this runs in complete contradiction to the whole concept of the Lord's table. The Lord's table represents the fact that we have all saved by the same death on the cross. Jesus Christ died as our substitute on the cross, and whether you're rich or poor, whether you're a slave or free, you all enter into the body of Christ by faith alone in Christ alone. And the instant you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, at that instant you have eternal salvation. And that can never be lost. And there is equality, and that is the only place that there is true equality in this life, is in the body of Christ. And so the Lord's table is to reflect that, that there is a a unity in the body of Christ, and this is one point where everything comes down to a common element, except in the way they were handling it was a perversion and blasphemy, and they were treating the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Now, the fact that Paul says another is drunk is a indication that the wine, that they drank wine, in the Lord's table. Now, there's been a lot of debate as to whether or not they they drank wine. And I've gone back and done some research on this. And in Greek culture as a whole, they drank wine, but it was a diluted wine. They would generally dilute the wine, uh, one part wine to, th- to uh, 
uh, three or four parts water, or sometimes they would dilute it as much as one part wine to ten parts water. It wasn't as strong as the wine that we uh, drink today. In the Old Testament, the Jews drank an alcoholic beverage wine with their with the Lord's table. In the Old Testament, you'll see two two different English English words used for for wine. Sometimes translate one's translated wine, and this is the um, Hebrew word yayin. And then you'll have another phrase, strong drink, which is the Hebrew word sakar. Yayin is normally translated wine, and Sakar, as I said, is translated strong drink. What you'll hear from some expositors and some teachers is they'll say, well, the wine here was a wine that they had boiled and therefore prevented it from from fermenting, and it was a non-fermented wine. The difference between wine and strong drink is that the strong drink was the alcoholic version of the wine. That's not true. Etymological data that's been discovered in the in, in the last uh, century has demonstrated that the Yayin was an alcoholic wine. Sakar was not a wine; it was a barley beer. It was barley beer. It, strong drink does not refer to. We think of strong drink. You think of a distilled beverage. You think of whiskey or vodka or tequila or whatever your favorite beverage is. And that was not known at that time. Dis, distilling alcoholic beverages wasn't developed until uh, the eighth or ninth century A.D. So that the concept of a distilled beverage was unknown in the ancient world. You just had two types of alcoholic beverages. You had wine and you had beer. And in fact, the the Jewish slaves, when they were uh, working on the pyramids or when they were working on whatever building projects a pharaoh had for them, they usually carried their lunch with them in the form of a beer. Now, it wasn't a can of beer, but whatever they had for a container, that because it's taken from barley, it contains a certain amount of nutrients and and uh, that was how they would uh, have their their lunch. That was typical. You can see, read that in various ancient Egyptian documents. Now, in the New Testament, or once you get into the Church Age, the early Church Age, known as the period of the Apostolic Fathers, these weren't the apostles, but these were those who were uh, the immediate successors to the fathers. We do have a couple of quotes that indicate that indicates that in the early Church, they clearly used a wine in the communion supper. Justin Martyr says, Then when we all rise together and pray, as we before said, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought. Now, why does he say bread and wine and water? Because they would dilute the wine with the water. Clement of Alexandria, who's in the uh, 3rd century, said, accordingly, as wine is blended with water, so is the spirit with man. And the one, the mixture of wine and water, nourishes to faith, while the other, the spirit conducts to immortality. In other words, recognizing the principle that in the early church they blended or mixed or diluted the, the wine with water. Now, where did this practice come from of using grape juice in the communion meal? Well, 
I've traced this back and the finally got some documentation on it this last year, but there was a a conservative, legalistic, Baptist uh, preacher who could not stand the idea, and this had to be in the late 19th century because in the early 1800s it, it was reversed. In the early 1800s, the saying was that if you if you found a preacher, if he had if he had a hip flask in his saddlebag, he was a hard shell Baptist. If he didn't, he was a Methodist. The Methodists were the teetotalers, and the Baptists weren't. By the end of the century, I think the Methodists had become the teetotalers, and the Baptists. Are the, are the Methodists weren't the teetotalers, but the Baptists became the uh, legalistic teetotalers. Well, anyway, this particular uh, pastor decided he would develop a process whereby you could keep grape juice from fermenting. You see, it's impossible in a warm climate, Mediterranean climate such as uh, in Israel, to keep grape juice from fermenting for very long. So this man knew that he had to develop a process, so he did, and his name was Welch. And that was how we got Welch's grape juice. And so we use Welch's grape juice in communion. That's where it comes from. But the early church up to the, and, and Christians throughout the church age up until the early part of the 20th century used wine instead of grape juice. In fact, many denominations still use wine instead of grape juice. So it's clear that they had, they came together, they ate a whole meal, and then they had wine with the meal, and it was an alcoholic beverage. Now verse 22. Paul says, what? I mean, the, the tone of his exclamation here in verse 22 is that he is just appalled. There is true righteous indignation here. He is appalled at the level of effrontery to the cross of Christ in their actions. It says, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? It says, or do you despise? And the word there is katai uh, phroneo, meaning to hold in contempt, to think lightly of, to show disrespect or disregard for something. He say, do you despise? Are you so contemptuous of the church of God and shame those who have nothing. And the word for shame means to embarrass, to uh, also to show despise to those to the to the poor. So he says, "Are you so contemptuous of the church that you want to embarrass the poor? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you." Verse twenty-three. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. So here he is going to go back to Luke chapter 22, verse 14, and what took place on the night before Christ went to the cross. So, excuse me, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. So what happened is on that particular night, the Galileans, remember, Jesus and the, and the disciples are all Galileans, so they would celebrate the, the Passover meal the night before. Because of the calendar system, they went on a 24-hour calendar system from midnight to midnight, and the Jews in Judea went on a 24-hour calendar system from sunset to sunset. So for the Galileans, the time that they would celebrate the Passover would be on the night before 
whereas the next night was when the Judeans would celebrate Passover. This is how Jesus can legitimately eat the Passover meal with the Galileans the night before he goes to the cross. And at the time he's on the cross, the Jews in Jerusalem, the Jewish priests, are slaughtering the Passover lambs for the celebration of the Passover in Jerusalem that evening. So, Jesus and the disciples sat down, and this is covered in detail in John chapter 13. They sat down, they ate the Passover meal, and it is the night before he is betrayed. And it's interesting that in this verse, he uses the uh, the uh, imperfect tense of the verb paradidomi, indicating an ongoing action in past time, so that he's emphasizing the fact that at the time Jesus is sitting there relaxed, eating the Lord's table with his disciples, the betrayal is already in process. Now, Judas, remember, is still there for part of the meal, but he's already made the deal with the this has been an ongoing thing. He didn't just go out and set it up that night. He had already been in negotiations with the Pharisees to betray the Lord. So Paul indicates here that this contrast between the Lord focusing on the Lord's table and what it represented in terms of his uh, atoning sacrifice for our sins, and while at the same time he's in the process of being betrayed. So he took the bread... And when he had given thanks, and this is the Greek word eucharizo, and this is the verb, the word for, or, or it's the noun, or the verb eucharizo and the noun eucharistes is the word for thanksgiving. And this is why it, the Lord's table is sometimes referred to as the Eucharist. It's usually referred to as either the Lord's table the Eucharist, which indicates that it is a focus on giving thanks for the Lord's table, or it is said to be the communion meal, communion emphasizing fellowship, not fellowship with one another, but fellowship with God, because it is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross that gives us that ability to have fellowship with God. So communion isn't with one another, it is with God. So Paul says, when he had given thanks, he broke it. Now, the breaking of the bread does not have symbolic significance because we know that Jesus' body was not broken on the cross. This is what uh, the prophet Isaiah foretold in Isaiah 53. And we know that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, that he said, it is finished, and then he gave up his spirit. He said, and he died. And when he died... Physically on the cross, it was ahead of schedule so that the Roman guards there as the sun set, and according to Jewish law, they had to get these bodies down off the cross and into the grave before sunset, that when the Roman guards would then to speed up to death, because crucifixion normally lasted anywhere from 48 to 72 hours, well, what they did was they would go along, they would break the legs of the of the man hanging on the cross so that he couldn't support himself anymore and he would have to just hang there from by his by his wrists and that would of course force his uh, internal organs up against his diaphragm he wouldn't be able to breathe and he would suffocate 
So when they came to Jesus, they were amazed that he was already dead, and that is why the uh, the Roman soldier pierced his side with the spear and the blood and water that came out, which is a separation of the red blood cells from the lymph, indicated that he was already dead. So he, the, the breaking of the bread is not symbolic of anything. He said, this is my body which is broken for you, and that's indicating the fact of his physical death on the cross. Do this in remembrance of me, that Jesus Christ in his physical life as a human being, remember he was undiminished deity and true humanity, united in one person, forever, that in his humanity he was sinless. That qualified him to go to the cross. We are to do this in remembrance of him. This is the purpose of the Lord's table. Now, in the early church, the early church view of the Lord's table was a memorial view. And then coming into the early part of the Middle Ages, you had the influence, once again, of Greek philosophy. And as a result of Greek philosophy merging with divine viewpoint, you picked up certain ideas and ways of trying to understand reality. This came into its full-blown significance in the later Middle Ages with the impact of Aristotelianism on medieval philosophy. And so they developed an idea called transubstantiation. And this is the view of the Roman Catholic Church, which has no view in the Scriptures, whatever. The idea here comes from this word substance in the middle. The substance, and this is an Aristotelian concept of substance. Substance isn't a material thing, but it is an immaterial thing. And that immaterial thing has various attributes or accidents. And those attributes or accidents include color and size and shape and weight and, and those things. And that's what you can see and measure, but you can't measure substance. And the trans indicates a transformation. And so in Roman Catholic theology developed the idea that every time you had the Lord's table, which they refer to as mass, that the Lord is crucified again. And that's just blasphemy because the Lord doesn't need to be crucified. Scripture says he died once for all. And the word for there is the Greek preposition, huper, which means as a substitute. He died once as a substitute for all. He doesn't need to be re-crucified again and again and again. That's one of the things you'll see if you go into a Roman Catholic church. They always have Jesus on the cross. But if you go into a Protestant church, Protestant church has an empty cross because Jesus isn't on the cross. He is not still being sacrificed for sin. Today, Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father. That's stated in numerous passages in Scripture. It's what is known theologically as the session of Christ. He is at the right hand of God the Father in his humanity. There is a human being sitting at the right hand of God the Father. In his deity, he's still omnipresent, but in his humanity, his resurrection body is located in one place. It can't be located in a million different churches every time they are having Mass and re-crucifying the Lord. That is a, a denial of the finished or complete work of Christ on the cross. So Paul says that on the that 
we are to do, quoting Jesus, we are to do this in remembrance of me. This is the Greek noun anamnesis, which means to remember or to recall. And then in verse 25, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So the cup, the the red color of the wine, is a picture of blood. Now, a sacrifice in the Old Testament was a blood sacrifice, but it wasn't the blood of the sacrifice that saved. The blood of the Old Testament sacrifice was a picture of a future sacrifice. Christ's physical death on the cross is not what paid the penalty for our sins. It is his separation from God between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God covered Golgotha with a dark cloud so that the onlookers could not see the pain and the misery that Jesus Christ was going through as God the Father poured out or imputed to him the sins of the world. Jesus did not become personally guilty of our sins. It is a legal, uh, judicial imputation where he took on himself our penalty. And the penalty was spiritual death. We go back, we've studied this many times, Genesis 2.17. God told, told Adam that the day he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would die. Well, when he ate, he didn't die physically, but there was a separation between him and God. They no longer had fellowship. There was a spiritual death that came. Spiritual death meaning separation from God. And the only way to resolve the problem of this judicial uh, disobedience to God is to have the judicial penalty paid. Now, if the penalty was physical death, then we would all pay that penalty when we died physically. So physical death can't be the issue. The issue is that spiritual death, Jesus Christ, as the God-man, paid that penalty on the cross as our substitute. He died in our place. So, in verse 25, we read, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Jesus established a new covenant by his spiritual sacrifice on the cross. A covenant is a contract in our terminology, and there's a new contract between God and man at this point. Any contract has stipulations. If you're going to benefit from the contract, you have to fulfill certain obligations. And the only obligation on the part of man is to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and that believing in Christ alone is all that is necessary. It's not believing in Christ and doing good. It's not believing in Christ and reforming your life. It's not believing in Christ and going to church. It's not believing in Christ and and uh, being involved in any kind of religious ritual. It is simply believing at one point in time that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins. John 3.18 says, He who believeth not... Uh, he who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already. Why? Because he did not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The only thing mentioned in that verse is belief. Again and again and again in Scripture, the issue is 
faith alone. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace is a free gift. You don't do anything to earn it or deserve it. You don't uh, get a little more grace every time you participate in some ritual. You don't get a little more grace every time you read your Bible. You don't get a little more grace every time you go to church. Grace is a free gift. You don't do anything for it. And Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. So it establishes a new covenant, new contract, new stipulation. And the stipulation is the price has been paid by the substitutionary spiritual death of Christ on the cross so that all we need to do to have eternal salvation is to believe Jesus died for our sins. And so Paul says, this do, as, uh, quoting Jesus, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Notice he says, as often as you drink it. He doesn't stipulate how frequently this should be. There are some groups, like the uh, Roman Catholic Church, do it hourly. Uh, there are other groups, like Plymouth Brethren, who do it weekly. There are other groups, like the Southern Baptists, who do it quarterly. And there are others who do it on a monthly basis, and it's our practice that first Sunday of every month we have the Lord's table. For he who eats and drinks, and uh, let's go on, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. See, the purpose is memory, memorial, and proclamation. We are rehearsing what took place on the cross every time we celebrate the Lord's table. It is a time for us to focus our attention back on the one thing we all have in common. That is that we were all born sinners under condemnation of Adam's original sin with an eternal death penalty. And the penalty was paid on our behalf by Jesus Christ, and we have all accepted that. So the Lord's table is for anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Some churches practice what's called closed communion. That means that if you're a member of this church... You're the only one who can participate in communion. But that violates the principle of the universal body of Christ. Anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, can participate in the Lord's table. But there is a warning. Verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. See, this is serious. This isn't something you just do. It's not just ritual. There is a serious significance to the Lord's table. There is meaning here. And if you come to the Lord's table uh, with, with unconfessed sin, we'll apply that in a minute. If you come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner as they were, I mean, the literal historical situation, they were coming just to get drunk and to have a good time. And if you come in, in such a manner, you are treating the Lord's table lightly. You are uh, denying its real significance. And so you are just, uh, in, in essence, blaspheming the Lord in your conduct at the Lord's table. That is Paul's meaning when he says, Whoever eats the bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. By extension, that means that if you come to the Lord's table out of fellowship with with unconfessed sin, then you are taking the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And you're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That means blasphemy, and there is a, a divine discipline for that. In contrast, Paul says in verse 28, But let a man examine himself, 
And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And the word for examine is the present active imperative of dokimadza, which means to evaluate for a positive result. See, there's different words in Greek for testing or for evaluation. One is to evaluate to look for what's good. One is to evaluate to expose what's bad. And here it's to look for a, in a positive sense to see that you're in fellowship. If not, confess your sins. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then in verse 29, we have a warning. He who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. In other words, there will be divine discipline. And this is explained in verse 30. For this reason, many are weak. And the word there is asthenes, and that means in this passage, spiritual uh, weakness. You're having problems in your spiritual life. Why? One reason may be because you're taking the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Others may be sick among you, and this had to do with physical sickness. Both weakness and sickness were warning discipline. And then Paul says, and many sleep. See, in the early church, God didn't mess around. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira when they lied against the Holy Spirit? They died instantly. Now, God doesn't do that today. But in the early church, to make sure people got oriented correctly, God had serious discipline enacted. It's the same way if you're a school teacher, you go into a classroom, you know that you have to maintain order in the first two or three uh, weeks or perhaps the first two or three months you're in that classroom. You're about ten times tougher on the students than you are later on because you have to establish your authority at the outset. So in the early church, the Lord established his, his authority and the seriousness of these events. And there were those who, when it says many sleep, they had died the sin unto death. Sleep is a euphemism used only for believers in the, in the New Testament. And it indicates that not soul sleep, but indicates just the idea that they have, they have died and they have, are now face to face with the Lord. But the emphasis of this passage is that there were those who were physically sick, there were those who were going through a lot of trouble in their spiritual life, and others who had died the sin unto death because they took the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Conclusion, verse 31, For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. This is through using 1 John 1, 9 and evaluating ourselves to make sure that we have confessed our sin. Verse 32, But when we are judged... We are chastened by the Lord, divine discipline, that we may not be condemned with the world. For Hebrews 12 tells us, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. This is a sign of legitimacy. Therefore, verse 33, Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. It's not only a matter, matter of good manners, but a matter of exemplifying the unity and the body of Christ and love for one another. Verse 34, but if anyone is hungry, if you're so famished that you just have to gorge yourself at the Lord's table, then go ahead and eat dinner at home before you come to church. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. And by that he means other issues he would take care of when he was there to teach them uh, face to face. 
Now, in the second hour today, we're going to have the Lord's Table, and I will begin with the last part of what I was going to cover this morning on how we do communion, just going over some of the processes and procedures and their significance. So we will begin with that in the second hour before we do we celebrate the Lord's Table together with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your Word today, to see once again how... Uh, all of your word hangs together in one unified whole, that there is no internal inconsistency, there are no contradictions in your word, and that the Lord's table is one of those elements that takes themes that run from the Old Testament Passover through the Gospels into the New Testament, always focusing on the fact that you have done everything for us. You are the God who delivers us from the slavery of sin, just as you delivered the Jews in the Old Testament from slavery in Egypt. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation, unsure of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, you can determine where you will spend eternity. All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone, believing that by faith in Christ only, you can have eternal life. That his death was sufficient. Nothing need to be added to it. Nothing else joined with it. All you need to do is believe Jesus died and for your sins and that his death completely paid the penalty. You can't add anything to it. It is a free gift. It is something God has done for you. So right now, all you need to do is put your faith alone, your trust, your reliance on Jesus Christ and the work that he has done for you on the cross. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today and that we would be able to apply them as we celebrate the Lord's table in this next hour. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.